America, my name is Ami Yosef from Prong. I come to you live every Monday and Thursday. Monday, I talk more about relationships. Thursday, I talk more about black politics. Today, it's not obviously about relationships, but it will get there pretty quickly if you stay with me because it's not obvious that Jim Crow was forward-facing policy. When I say Jim Crow, I talk about the slew of cultural and political um, statements and uh, and disciplining procedures that effectively secured the racial order insofar as black Americans, African-American descendants of slaves specifically, were um, relegated to second-class citizens in the United States and also elevated, you know, the whites. Right. So that's what I talk about when I talk about Jim Crow. Um, I talk about, you know, there's a civil war, then there's reconstruction where we tried to make everyone equal, but then the whites got mad. And so we pulled back all of the reconstruction um, bills and uh, disciplining procedures and opened it up for the Klan. And that is where the Jim Crow culture was born. It didn't really even think about ending until the 50s. Well, a little bit in the 40s with FDR uh, desegregating the military. But, like, you know, it was, it was going strong, right? So the question is, should black people today be somehow affected or compensated for state-sponsored degradation? That happened during the Jim Crow times. But, and this is important, I think they should be. And I think that uh, once I make this argument, you will think I'll make once I make this case, you will agree with me. And first, I'll just say that, like, look, let's say you're 25 years old. If you're 25 years old and you have $10 million in the bank and all you care about, all you don't care about anything else, really, except that your grandkids, you want lots of grandkids and you want your grandkids to live pretty comfortable lives, um, pretty upstanding lives. And so their great grandkids live pretty upstanding lives. And you have $10 million in the bank. But that's all you really want to do, and you have like the rest of your life to do it. You're 25, 30 years old, you have $10 million in the bank. All you want is for your unborn grandkids to live really good, comfortable lives. What are you going to do? Well, you're going to buy some property. Um, you're going to start a family business, something that can be passed on to them, and that's something that's stable. You're going to buy some property, start a family business. You're going to find like-minded people in some sort of spiritual community because the market might have designs on your grandkids and grandkids so you need to, to somehow inculcate uh inoculate i'm sorry inoculate them against the designs of the markets and, and marketing that's going to try to suborn them from your vision of having really good grandkids so you're going to find some spiritual community you're going to have, have property you're going to buy property you're going to buy find a, a, a build a spiritual community you're going to build a family business you're also um, going to be very careful about what kind of spouse you pick because once you have a spouse, the kids are also hers. And you, like part of your plan for having really good grandkids means like actually raising your kids, possibly, right? So you need a spouse who's not going to leave you. So you need the kind of a like-minded spouse who's going to row the same way with respect to the, the family project of creating really, really excellent grandkids. Or at least grandkids who are happy, living comfortable lives. And you know what? And you want 15 of them. You want 15 grandkids. We're all going to live comfortable. If that's what you want to do, that is totally possible. It's completely possible. You can plan it. You know, the politics, well, the vagaries in politics, um, there'll be political wins that make this harder or easier. But for the most part, if you, if you have a dream of in 60 years having 15 grandkids, all of them doing well, and you have $10 million in the bank and you're in your mid-20s, you can do it. Now, one of two of them you might lose to drugs. You know, someone zigs where they should have zagged and, and you, <laughs> they get a back injury and then before they know it, they're on painkillers and then somehow we don't get them into rehab fast enough so they get the street version of the painkiller. So, like, something might happen and you lose a few to drugs. But I'm just saying that if that's what you intend to do, you can do it. And uh, the, the stronger part is that in two generations, in 60 years, when those people are living comfortable lives, you can, they could be under the ideological programming that they did it themselves. So if you want kids who not only are doing pretty well and living pretty comfortably, but think that they did it themselves, you can orchestrate all of that 
with enough money um, uh, generations prior, right? You can do it. You can do it, right? Now, what's the opposite of that? The opposite of that is if you're a government and you have, you have control of the policy and a monopoly um, control of force in the society, and you want to make sure that a people's grandkids are completely powerless and functionally relegated to second-class citizens, you can do that too. What do you do? Well, you do the opposite of what the person who wanted to hook up their grandkids did. You make sure that the people then can't buy property because in America, if you can't buy property and you want to do stuff, do stuff, doing stuff takes an interaction with property. So if you can't buy property, that means um, you're going to be renting somebody else's property that's already an asymmetric dependence on them. So you, you, you get rid of their property um, relations. You uh, screw up their families. You, um, so that it's, it's, you know, being an American, uh, being an American civilian is kind of a technical, a technical expertise, and it takes the acculturation of a family to actually learn how to do it and not, you know, squander your life. So if you want to make sure that the targeted population's grandkids aren't doing very well, you, you screw up their family so that the kids won't do very well, and you screw up their spiritual commitment so that now they'll be... Um, um, subjected to the market. And once you screwed up their property and you screwed up their spiritual commitments and they won't own any of the media, so you control their ideas even about themselves. Right? So um, you, and then you use market power in order to feed them ideas about themselves that will then further their degradation. Some people say this is hip-hop music. Some, like, there are a lot of ideas uh, floating around. So this is, this is the policy you would institute today to make sure that the target population's grandkids will be subordinate to your, to your grandkids, right? So these are all policies. Um, so you screw up their property holdings. You make it impossible for them to uh, sustain business contracts. Uh, you screw up their, the ability to have strong families. And... Uh, yeah, the spiritual commitments just say, and you tell them, don't expect justice or power in this world or comfort in this world. Say, like, wait, wait till you get to the peace of heaven. Um, and so you screw up their spiritual commitments so that they never actually seek autonomy here. So you've seeded the conditions of, of, of autonomy. You've um, not seeded, spoiled the conditions of their autonomy. Right? And remember, all of this is just the inverse of what I said if you were a rich person and you wanted your grandkids to do well. You're with me there. If you don't think the other side is the story of black life and the, the plan of Jim Crow, where the policy was, we need to make sure not that just these people aren't going to be anything, but that their grandkids will be subordinate. Um then I hope you're starting to see where this argument's going. And I'm going to get into it more, how this worked uh, after the beat. To the beat, y'all. Change the ways for the world or the government If it was the president, then I would state facts You leave it up to me, I paint the White House black And it can feature in your front So one reason why the affirmative action was, was has now gone the way of the dodo bird at the federal level is because we don't understand how lineage works. We don't understand that the plans you have now actually affect children uh, forward. We don't understand why family is important. We don't understand why spiritual institutions are important. We don't understand why how all of these institutions figure into a functional into functional grandchildren and functional great-grandchildren. And apparently, there's a research that says, actually, the social status of your, grandkid, of your grandparents 
is hugely important. The social status of your grandparents. Not necessarily the economic status, but the social status. This is why like people can, you know, come from other countries and come to America with nothing and do fine. But we find out that their grandfather was like very, very well situated in whatever society that they were in before. And then they, those habits actually matter because being functional is a skill. And it's a skill that's built over generations. And so we got a lot of, for example, Brahmin Indians in the United States who come here and they've been treating lower caste Indians uh, like garbage for hundreds if we include uh, colonialism and thousands if we take away British colonialism of, of use. So that's acculturated knowledge. They come and then just kind of translate that into treating black people like garbage. And then, you know, they do very well. They do very well. Apparently they are the wealthiest um, Indian Americans are the wealthiest ethnic minority, but they come here with intact families and cultures of how to make money off the back of an exploited population. And then they apply that sensibility to America, and it's a pretty seamless fit. It's like uh, translating Ukrainian to Russian. It's not that hard. Portuguese to uh, Spanish, right? So what I have to say is that Jim Crow was always forward-facing policy. The plan was that black grandkids would not have the con like would not thrive in a way that would negate the aspirations of white grandkids and you know what's happened that that it's worked out it's worked out because forward-facing plans work out but in so until we understand what it meant that you know our uh American descendants of Jim Crow and slavery and Jim Crow were not allowed to hold property, were not secured contracts, and we don't understand that the black family in Jim Crow was overdetermined. And you say like, no, no, the black family was strong in, in uh, Jim Crow time. The, the black family was strong in Jim Crow time. That's just not true. You've just been reading too much Sowell. Um, at a very superficial level, maybe because there are fewer divorces because people couldn't go anywhere, but yeah, yeah. It's funny, I was doing some research on Ike Turner for a different show, and it turns out that his father, uh, you, you might have seen me talk about it before, his father, or just go to the Ike and Tina show here, his father was um, apparently having an affair with an area white woman, some white, was a woman in the neighborhood. That woman's husband got up a posse, dragged him out of his house, beat him up, filled him full of holes, and then in front of his wife and family, um, and then dumped him into, dumped him back home, and then he died Three years later, um, he never left the bed that he was dumped on. So he was put on a hospital bed and then like was barely alive for three years and then died. That, that happened when Ike Turner was six. And you know what? Nobody's really surprised when they hear that. They're horrified, but they're not surprised. You know, I want to know why they're, they're not surprised. Because every institution and every relationship, in the, uh, black relationship under Jim Crow was overdetermined by the whites. It was what it was because that's what the whites needed it to be. And that includes the black family. He didn't have any family protection. Right? Like, up until the 50s, 75% of the southern black workforce were sharecroppers or farm workers or domestic workers. Farm workers or domestic workers. And you know what? Those domestic workers were assaulted. This is way before me too, y'all. Um, those domestic workers were assaulted left and right. We joke about it when when we read To Kill a Mockingbird um, that, you know, the man on trial was raped by that white girl, but, uh, or at least harassed, suggested it was raped, depending on how you uh, read it. But that's never been the focal point of the story. It's always like, can we get Tom, I believe his name is Tom, Tom off. Um, not, you know, Tom himself was the victim. <laughs> to Kill a Mockingbird. I just want to make sure I get my, um, yeah, Tom Robinson was himself the victim of Mayella. Instead of being charged with rape and assault, he himself was raped and assaulted. But nobody cares about that. Well, we have to understand that black women, sisters, wives, uh, nieces were assaulted left and right working in these white man's homes. Right, and black men too. I mean, it was, it was depicted there, but we still didn't see it just because like, we're just so used to black vulnerability. 
that we don't see. Yeah, Mayala raped him. Mayala assaulted him. He should be the one pressing charges against her. Right? So uh, that was normalized. So the black family wasn't functional in Jim Crow because its, it's internal dynamics were still determined by the conditions of outside. It's like these little black towns in the South where like, well, like, we're a black owned town, we're a black town. But anytime, like Jackson, Mississippi, anytime they need money, they got to run to the Klan. And it's a city, so they don't control, they don't print their own money. They got to run to the Klan in the form of the Mississippi state government um, for money, right? So you have this black little town and we think like, we're an independent black little town, but how do you get money? How do you make sure your water's clean? Look, in all these little black towns, I would check the water very carefully. Because every little black town is run is really run by a, a white state legislature who may not care if black people have clean water, right? So this idea that just because the the races were segregated, somewhat segregated in Jim Crow, that black life wasn't overdetermined by um white anxiety is just false. Black life all the way down to the black family. Fathers couldn't protect their wives from getting sexually assaulted because they needed the money. 75% of the workforce was domestic workers. Like someone had to cook these white Thanksgiving meals and it wasn't white women, right? It was black women. So it's not like you could control your family when Thanksgiving, I, you know, I say this because uh, you know, Yvette actually told this story online, so I feel comfortable telling the story. Yvette told the story about her, how, how her mom used to cook for a uh, white family, but then, like, after a while, there were too many Thanksgiving dinners where, like, Yvette's mom would be cooking it for a white guy, and then Yvette Connell. You can double-check double check the story with Yvette herself. She'll, she'll, she'll vouchsafe it. And not home for her own kids, and then so they just figured out a different arrangement. <laughs> you know, the mom had to quit the job. Um, because that was just like Yvette's dad wanted a like some sort of like family of his own and not just a family that existed at the whims and pleasures of Yvette's mom's boss. Right? So the black family was always overdetermined by the needs of white anxiety. Right? And so when the black family is overdetermined by the needs of white anxiety, it explains why, you know, the black family today is not doing that great. Not like you could tell some sort of story about how um, black families are great and, and we're the strong and black magic. No, they're not. The kids are not doing that great. <laughs> like home ownership's gone back down. Um, it's, it's not like black families are not thriving. The divorce rates are higher. There's a lot of more fracture. Um, so, but that was all by design. That was all the strong black families would actually be kind of a source to challenge um, the racial order. So the, the conditions for strong black families were, were bleached, deeted back in the 50s and 60s. And we're just seeing that played out. We're just seeing that played out. Um, we can have all of the sorts of excuses about why that's the case, but nevertheless, it is the case. And like I think in order to deal with it, we have to make black descendants of slaves who come from the, the, the lineage that was like bleached and, 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 and DDT'd out um, and genetically modified, <laughs> culturally modified in order to like have non-healthy, deformed offspring in, in terms of family structure. We need to actually like address that. And, you know, I think, I think it just comes, the first step should be securing assets for black descendants of slaves. But, yeah, I mean, that's step one. The, and then like the seeds of autonomy can grow from that. Land and cash to black descendants of slaves. And then um, uh, we can build autonomy from that, but you need a, you need some sort of property because if you don't have property, you end up renting from other people, and then you're on the hook to those other people. Um, so we need to think of Jim Crow as forward-looking, as forward-looking degradation. Uh, the plan was that the grandparents would not, the grandkids would not 
be autonomous and have power. And you know what? The grandkids do not are not autonomous and do not have power. And you can say like, well, what about HBCUs? And even HBCUs, those are all black spaces. Those are still spaces of white supremacy. And so far as the most powerful person in black educational life, his name's McKinsey Scott. That's uh, Jeff Bezos' ex-wife. She gives millions of dollars to HBCUs every year, right? So do you think that the HBCU administration is going to do something against that's going to be on the other side of Mackenzie Scott? The answer is no. And don't forget, I think both, I know W.B. Du Bois was fired from an HBCU for being too black. And, and supporting black people and questioning whether some of the white funders were actually concerned about uh, black autonomy. That's, that's documented. H, uh, WC Bo Du Bois was fired from an HBCU. I believe Carter G. Wilson, Woodson was. Um, let me just look this up really quickly. Yeah, Carter G. Woodson. I believe he was fired um, from an HBCU. Woodson. Do, 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 do. I just want to make sure this is right. Uh, feared by Woodson actions. Yeah, he was fired before commencement from where to, it might be Atlanta University. Howard. <laughs> Howard. Hey, uh, Carter G. Woodson was fired from Howard. I publicly criticized UK for damaging the academic freedom. But yeah, so Howard had a white president and yeah, and yeah, and Carter G. Woodson was fired. There is your uh, historically black HBCU. Um, there's your HBCU. Who's really, it's really run by white philanthropy. And to an extent, because all money is white in the United States, all real money, non-discretionary money. And I'm going to do a, a show on Thursday about, um, yeah, Jay-Z not even having, yeah, Jay-Z and black money. But, the, but, not, but discretionary money, money that, that can actually just kind of be lost and not missed, um, that, that kind of money is white. And that the kind of money that HBCUs need. You can talk about the one or two black billionaires, but that doesn't like that one or two in a nation of 40 million people. That's not real money, especially when there's so many white millionaires, <laughs> right? So um, billionaires and millionaires, actually, there's just, there's so much discretionary income. There isn't the quality of discretionary income um, in the black community that there is in the white community. And that's, that translates into freedom, right? So, um, we have to look at the conditions for thriving and compare those conditions to say the recent immigrants um, who supposedly come here with nothing except an engineering degree in an intact family. That's like an intact, the asset value of an intact family and a culture that can sustain an intact family and a closed community of other people who know how to sustain an intact family. So even if you're black and you come from an intact family, you would, it's a little bit tricky to find another black person who comes from an intact family and then have those people themselves actually be about securing resources at the community level, right? So let's say you're like a conservative black person from an intact family and you married another conservative black person from an intact family. Everything about your conservatism has been deformed in order to assimilate or survive white supremacy. So we have the family structure insofar as it's intact that's been distorted to support white supremacy. And we have the church insofar as it's intact that's been um, distorted in order to support white supremacy. We have to get disabuse ourselves of the notion that Martin Luther King Jr. was particularly popular even with black Christians toward the end of his life. Even Daddy King was like, Daddy King, you know, the pastor was like, you know, you can't talk like that. These 
you're going to get these black people killed. And like a lot of other pastors uh, were similarly singing the same song. So liberation theology came from the black, uh, came from the black church, but it was always a radical faction of the black church. It wasn't the center of the black church. The center of the black church, insofar as it could be in America and thrive in America, thrived in a way that could survive and assimilate into, but mostly survive and support, you know, racial order. This is why, for example, even the NOI, the Nation of Islam, is what it is. And, you know, the whites aren't scared of black nationalism. They own it. Like, the whites own everything. <laughs> um, they, are, they aren't scared of black nationalism because they know they own everything. They're not scared of... Uh, assimilation because that's assimilating into the white moors that legitimize white people owning everything. What they're scared of is the kind of kind of quality of integration that I live my life whereas I am I'm a fan of integration. I just don't believe black people should integrate on their knees. I think they should integrate at a loving a level playing field and that we need to distort the board a little bit if we're going to make that happen, right? I'm a fan of integration. I do not want black people to integrate on their knees. I think we need to integrate the power. So if we're going to integrate the United States, let's talk about integrating the wealth, <laughs> um, integrating the landing holding to commercial properties, the, the board seats, integrating the generational um, you know, culture of success, which we don't have, right? Like, and look, my dad's from Ghana and my mom's from South Carolina. And I'm not even going to lie. Like, my mom's extended family is not particularly winning. And my dad's extended family here, it's a more complicated uh, story, but nobody's really winning. Nobody's really winning because they haven't actually fought, um, fought, fought white supremacist power. For example, my kids are going to be the quality of kids that my dad wanted me to be, but my mom kind of screwed that up with the divorce, right? So like a lot of my parenting comes from like what I remember pre-divorce of like how my dad raised me. And then, you know, of course I've read a lot of books and stuff like that and thought about a lot of things. And you know, my kids are kind of awesome. They, they like anyone who knows my kids, like they are, they're the product of a pretty good system. And they're not like, you know, genetically gifted and superior. No, they're just, I have a system that comes from a culture that, uh, you know, my dad tried to kind of uh, realize and me and my sister, but couldn't because you need, like it was, it, there were obstacles, there were American obstacles and entitlements that got in the way and that led to, you know, my parents divorcing and then you can't, you, you can't be a parent like I'm a parent uh, half on, on weekends. And then, you know, my mom had a little bit more of like a kind of inst American institution view of it, not a little less hands-on parenting and, and it, it didn't work particularly well. A little bit better for my, uh, um, for me than my sister, but like, you know, it's not the same. Parents need to be parents. You can't, it doesn't matter how much money you need. Like in America, in America, black parents need to actually be parents. White people may be able to get away from buying institutions and buying their appropriate institutions to, to raise their kids for them. But black parents actually need to be parents. Um, I'm just telling you now, if you don't hear it, if you like no amount of money is a substitute for, you know, a good black mother or father for a black child. So I'm just telling you, by the way, if you support me talking the way I'm talking, I'm going to talk more about parenthood later on. Um, uh, I'm going to talk more about parenthood later on and, and more videos to come. But uh, if you support what I'm doing, go ahead and go to www.funkyacademic.com and kick, uh, kick in $5, 15 or $50 a month. Because a lot of people aren't talking about that. Right. Yeah. Black people were, were socially modified. Like, black people were socially modified. This is, I'm reading the chat right now. Baby Rodriguez has this right. Um, 
black people were socially modified. The black family is what it is because of Jim Crow. Right? The black church is what it is because of the pressures of Jim Crow. Black property holdings are what they are um, because of Jim Crow. Black businesses are what they are because of, because of Jim Crow. And once you're locked out, there's no like, you have so many liabilities that there's no asking your way back in. Right? So the, your grandkids are screwed. There are so many black people I know who like I can just like good people. This is why you can't talk about this with white people because white screw ups from who are good white white people who are like moderately competent whose grandkids are going to be screw ups. It's going to be because like of drugs. So when white people think of screw ups, they think of the drug. They're they're idiot. Uh, do I think my mom? Yeah, of course my mom loved me, um, but it doesn't matter. Like. You could be bad at loving people. You can be bad at loving people. This is what people don't understand. Some Timothy Cornison said, do you think your mom loved you? Yes, she, my mom loves, loved and loves me very much. Doesn't mean she had the skills to do it. You can love your house, but does that mean you have the skill to fix it? You can love your car. Does that mean you have, you're a good driver of that car? You can love it. You could worship it. Actually, if you love it, you might protect it in the wrong way because you don't know how to use it, right? So um, a lot of people love their kids. A lot of very good parents love their kids badly. Um, and that is, that is a whole thing. That is a whole thing. All right, so what I wanted to say about black families being socially modified for failure is that I know so many black people whose grandkids are going to be screwed because they, and who's, who are actually good, rule, good rule-following black people um, who is uh, rule-following black people who are still screwed because they don't have the inst institutional skill. And this isn't financial literacy. They don't have the institutional skill, knowledge, or resources uh, um, to, uh, to not screw up very important relationships like in their lives. If you think, if you're one of these people, and I'm sure you exist, if you're one of these people who think that black uh, child, uh, broken families would be the same regardless of, of Jim Crow, like the epidemic of single-parent households and, black, and broken families would be the same regardless of Jim Crow. That is, um, you and I don't agree. <laughs> I think black families are what they are, the mess that they are because of Jim Crow. Also, white families, a lot of them are only held together because of the money. They're only held together because of money and they could just buy their way out of problems. Um, and, uh, and so like nobody really knows what they're doing but a lot of whites get away with it because they have the money to cover for the fact that they don't really know what they're doing. And, and um, you know, black people don't have the money and so they, the, the families break up, right? And, you know, who does know what they're doing? A lot of recent immigrants who come from intact families, like with a culture that actually has figured out because we, we suck in the cultural elite from... Um, Nice work, Charles Obey. We suck in the cultural elite from the entire world. So a lot of people come here and are very good with families and are very, very good about families, even if they don't have a dime. And if, if you're very, very good about family and you know like how to actually raise them well, you don't need to be particularly rich for your grandkids to do very well. I'll say that again. If you come here with an intact family and a culture of intact family and have a community of people who actually understand, if they screw up everything else, they actually understand family really well, you do not have to be very rich to, um, to have pretty, to have okay grandkids. The problem is, and you know what? The Jim Crow Southerners knew that, so we don't have that. So, like... I don't trust, don't trust any liberal to, to talk about your family. But not only that, um, like black people do not have, we're not able to build 
the generation of skill that goes into um, you know, sustaining strong families. Someone asked Jim Crow or the unintended consequences of welfare. No. Like, so it's Jim Crow. So Jim Crow was like had a family relationship that was built on a white patriarch who then tied his masculinity in controlling into controlling the Negroes for the protection of the white family. That was never going to be the dynamic of the black family. That was never was and it was never the dynamic, never going to be the dynamic of the black family. Right? So that that family that that dynamic is toxic was never the black um, um, toxic racist and was going to be toxic and racist and um, was never going to be the dynamic of the black family. And that's a good thing. However, however, the black family was overdetermined by the needs for survival in that world. So the meek black family that just kind of like moved so they didn't get bombed and quietly like kind of stayed together but wasn't allowed to be particularly free was never going to be free in that dynamic does that make sense um and the result of that after the civil rights movement and the liberalization of of kind of divorce laws and family was that the market and market ideology and market liberalism took over the way we talk about families, right? So you go from conservative white families and then the response of black families that's still not particularly healthy, but is more egalitarian than conservative white families. And then you remove, you remove all culture, you, you liberalize black families without actually allowing any independent content and since black people don't control the media, they were learning what family was from people who do not have black self-determination in mind. And that's the problem. So for example, here's an example of this. An example of this is this idea that you kick out, um, uh, you know the number of people, the number of black people I've heard casually say that they would kick out their 18 year old kids at 18 because they're legally adult. What kind of nonsense is that? You need to be acculturated in that kind of stupidity. Like, nobody in the rest of the entire world would kick out an 18-year-old um, just because that 18-year-old turned, turned 18. But you get that because that's, like, the law, the white man's law, that, like, somehow we've, like, given authority. And since we don't have an autonomous, like, space to actually critique that, like, ridiculous notion... And we don't control the black voice. And this is one thing that Kanye was right about. Like, if you don't, if you learn how to be a parent from your own parents and then media, if you know, black people don't, if powers that care about black autonomy and black self-determination don't control the black media, that means, and your family screwed up, that means, like, you are, you're just like a fertile ground for all sorts of really bad ideas about what it means to be a parent. And one of those bad ideas um, one of those bad ideas is that you kick out uh, your children at 18 because they're 18. First of all, if your 18-year-old isn't like on their way to college or isn't on their way to be functional, that's like so you've screwed up. And instead of just kind of pushing that screw up onto the military, <laughs> you need to own that screw up and figure out how to make that right. If your 25-year-old isn't on their way to being functionally outside of the house, well, that's a lot, a lot of that has to do with your parenting. You haven't prepared them appropriately. Right? So you have to understand that the ruling class told the black and working class and, and poor class to kick their kids out at 18. Meanwhile, the ruling class, the ones who are actually winning, they're buying their kids' houses. They're buying their kids' houses, setting them up with mortgages. They're buying their kids' cars and paying for the first years of insurance. They're buying their 25-year-old kids' um, houses, whole houses, hooking up their entire grandkids. Like, that's how the ruling class is living there. They're not, the ruling class is not kicking their kid 
out at 18. They're paying for their kids' rehab at 25. They're paying for their kids' divorce. They're doing the opposite of that, right? Anytime you go to a white wedding that's like $40,000, which is a lot of white weddings, just know that there's another $100,000 gift for the house that's a down payment on a house. Um, so, like, look, I'm, t I'm telling you, you have been culturally deformed and you are a deficient parent if you're kicking your kid out of 18. It might not be your fault. It might not be your fault. But I'm here to tell you, you are, you, um, are defective as a parent and you've been fed a lot of bad ideas if you're kicking your kid out at 18. 18 only became an adult because of like the Vietnam draft age. Like it's an arbitrary number you picked up from the whites, <laughs> from like an awful war. Like you are, I don't want to say you're an idiot, but if you are kicking your kid who can't yet drink out of the house, like you aren't, you don't know, you've been a bad parent if your kid is that obnoxious that you just want space from them. But also you don't know enough about family to know what it takes. Like you're, 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 you're bad about that. You're bad on this. Like, all right. So, um, so market liberalism screwed up the black family after the civil rights movement, but the black family was already not autonomous in Jim Crow. So this notion that Jim Crow left the black family, this notion that Jim Crow left the black family alone and somehow the black family was autonomous is ridiculous. It's probably the same notion that thinks that HBCUs are autonomous when really they'll do whatever it takes to get McKinsey Scott and they won't do Ms. Kenzie Scott's money. And they won't do um, anything that'll make McKenzie Scott upset. Right? That was the black family in Jim Crow. Right? So, like, don't let, I don't know, I haven't seen the Wonder Years, but don't let um, television fool you about the degradation of the black family. And even Ike Turner, you know, I was, you know, I do research on black fathers. So, Richard Williams, Ike Turner, Joe Jackson. So, uh, yeah, Ike Turner was married, like, he said 13, 14 times, because he just, you'd pay some guy, a preacher. Um, I'm 45 years old. Um, he'd pay some preacher $3, get married. And he's like, at the time, you know, black people didn't bother with divorce, which kind of makes sense because divorces are expensive. But also you got, you know, there's a reason why Papa Was a Rolling Stone was a, was a famous song uh, because it actually expressed a lot of people's life. If you could leave, sometimes you left. And like the black family was always a disaster because it was over, because black life, Black life in all institutional life, family, church, businesses, and property was overdetermined by the needs of white anxiety. Family didn't get some sort of pass, just like the black church didn't get some sort of pass. The black church is what it is because that's a church the white people needed black people to have. Even, and I say this all the way down to the NOI. Right? So, um, the black family was never immune from the overdetermination of of black life by white supremacy. And then, you know, I, I talk about Ike Turner's horrible, horrible, horrible childhood. And then Ike Turner's own, like, you know, 13, 14 marriages. But then also Richard Williams. Everybody knows Venus and Serena. Richard Williams, like, had whole other, whole other kids <laughs> um, that, he had to, that he left from because he kind of had to throw those away because he was, you know, because the black family... The, the external pressures of black family life are not great, right? Right? So, uh, like, I like Richard Williams as a model of fatherhood, I think. Um, but he, even he, had to, th like, had to say sayonara to a whole nother family. I don't know about Joe Jackson had other children. I don't know if there was a life before uh, the Jackson 5 kids. Right? So, like, no, there's no making up for it. You say King Richard made up. No, there's no making fun. You can't, you can't leave, you can't leave your family make up for it. There is just, it's a qualified loss, but it's still an L. You, you, if you, anytime you have to forsake your children, it's an L. Anytime. Marvin Gaye's dad, you got to take the L. That was a spectacular L, but, like, you know, I don't know, um, Uh, that's, that's a spectacular L, but like, I, I don't, I, I, I don't know about Joe Jackson. Anyway, 
Um, so Jim Crow overdetermined all black relationships, which included family relationships. So we need to stop mythologizing the black family under Jim Crow and understand how, like, what successful families look like under Jim Crow was success not in the form of black empowerment, but was success in the form of surviving white self-determination um, ex and external determination from the whites, right? And then you get rid of, you get rid of, you know, the Jim Crow structures and you open that up into like post-civil rights movement. We have no structures to combat like market liberalism because the idea was that in the Jim Crow South it was telling black people that your grandkids would not be anything oh Earl Wood had three other children before Tiger Woods like like the Jim Crow regime was the regime that tells black people that their grandkids would not be anything and you know what their grandkids are not much their grandkids are not much. Their grandkids are not Barack Obama. Barack Obama was a Kenyan. <laughs> Kenyan. Kenyan and white. Like, so let's stop pretending the Jim Crow plan wasn't just that the kid, that the people would not be anything, but that the people would not be anything. As in like the people on through time. To know something, you have to know it's principle of regeneration. It's, it's principle of reproduction. It's birth and death. It's principle of reproduction. So when you're degrading black people, you're not just degrading the black people you see. You're degrading the... We've been culturally modified to create degraded offspring in a way. Now, white families are also screwed up. White families are also screwed up. Right? But so are black families, just in different ways. And um, they have kind of complementing stories. And we need to understand why that's the case. But I, want, I just want to say, don't romanticize Jim Crow. It's not fair. It's not fair. Because the conservative black people who kind of move through Jim Crow by saying no to Dr. King, like, that was what success looked like. So when you romanticize Jim Crow, you're romanticizing black subordination. Because as soon as those people got loud, they got shot. They got dragged out. As soon as you romanticize Jim Crow, you romanticize the notion that your wife could go work for a white guy's home, and then if he harassed you, you wouldn't be able to do anything. Okay? So, because that was black life. Like, stories I hear about my grandfather. My mom still tells a story of, uh, about her father who... You know, she lived in a little black neighborhood and all that stuff, but the, still, the bank owner was white, and every day, I mean, every month, her dad would have to write a check that was a little bit too big to cover a loan. And that check would eat at him inside. She thinks writing that check every month took off 10 years from his life. And I have no reason to believe that she would make that up. Um, so all institutional life, all relationships. And he wrote that check for the sake of his family, got the loan for the sake of his family, got the loan for the house for the sake of his family. But writing that check took years off his life. All black institutions, all black relationships, including the family relationships, including the church relationships, were overdetermined by the needs of white anxiety. And it's just that there might have been a little bit of a remove, <laughs> right, if, if um, when it was a, a black um, yeah, all right, so this is very good. So when you say that, uh, Bebe Rodriguez, thank you for mentioning it. I never romanticized Jim Crow, 1875 to 1975. It meant my grandfather leaving school at 12 to have to harvest their tobacco farm. So when you talk about black people in education, when you talk about black people in education, what does it mean that your grand, when you talk about black people's educational aspirations being overdetermined by Jim Crow? When your family has to, when you have to work, when you have to quit school to go to work at 12, like what does that mean for your ability to pass on like educational culture to your, to your children, right? To your grandchildren, right? So um, this idea, this idea 
And what does that mean about the, your aspirations? What if your great-grandfather wanted your child to go to school? If your, your great-grandfather, what if Bebe Rodriguez's uh, great-grandfather wanted uh, you know, her grandfather to go to school, but had to pull him out of school in order to farm this tobacco farm? That means the Jim Crow economy, the sharecropping economy, has overdetermined Bebe Rodriguez's great-grandfather's aspirations for his own children. So Bebe Rodriguez's great-grandfather wasn't in charge of Bebe Rodriguez's grandfather. Like, when your family is overdetermined by the financial needs, and the financial needs are set by the anxieties of the Jim Crow economy, then that means the Jim Crow economy determines your family structure. Right. Thank you for your time. It's been a longest show. Look, you don't hear stuff like this anywhere else. So go to www.funkyacademic.com. Kick in five, fifteen, or fifty dollars a month. Share this with your family. Share this with your friends. Think about Jim Crow as a forward-facing political regime, and the legacy and the lineage of Jim Crow is what it is because it was an effective forward-facing regime. And go back to the analogy I made at the beginning about how you could plan for your grandkids with effective, with, um, uh, with efficacy, like regardless of the political wins. I'm saying that the United States planned for your life back in the 50s. They planned for your life, and that's how your life is, has turned out. They planned for you to be divorced, or like they planned for you to not have a strong family that could compete with anybody else. They planned for all of that. They plan for you not to have the property holdings. They plan for you not to have the business contacts. They plan for you not to have the, um, um, the resources to fight market culture. That means you didn't have the spiritual resources. They plan for all of that. And you know what? Now you don't. And that's why you need to be repaired. Because they poisoned your lineage. They poisoned your lineage and your lineages and your grandparents' ability to set up the institutions that would support you today. Thank you for your time. Um, kick in, subscribe, share. <laughs>